So in fourth grade, in fourth grade, I entered into the science fair. Um, I had become enamored with transportation and specifically efficient transportation. And so there was this, this book that I was reading as a fourth grader, and it talked about the hover trains over in Asia. And so you have these electromagnetically levitated hover trains that were being built uh, to make these highly efficient train systems. And I thought that was the coolest thing in the world. I mean, the idea that you could take magnets, reduce friction, and let a train just travel so fast, I, I, I was, my mind was blown. And so as a fourth grader, as the science fair was approaching, I was like, I want to emulate that. I want to put that technology on display. And so armed with cardboard dowel rods and a magnet set that I had gotten from some little rock thing in Utah, I went to work at setting up a demonstration of what magnets could do to create an efficient travel system. And I worked at it, and I worked at it, and I worked at it, and I failed. No matter how hard I tried, there were no principles that were at play in those electromagnetic trains that I could actually demonstrate with the tools that I had. And I found myself at this place of like extreme discouragement. There were probably two factors at work there. Number one, I was really excited about this and I, I wanted to work. I was just sheer excitement. Number two was the competition aspect of academics that had already been introduced into my life. And so as, as somebody who liked to compete, I was really good with competing, but already at that age, um, I, I was faced with, in the school setting, this kind of lose-lose situation academically. See, back, back then, anonymity was not protected when it came to your grades. And so those things were posted publicly and all that kind of stuff. And, and so every time I did anything from an assignment standpoint, my classmates knew what I made and I knew what they made. And so as years had gone by, I'd spent time with those same groups of students. One thing uh, had, had occurred is that typically um, I was close to the top, if not the top. And so what, what happened then, had carried all the way through middle school and high school, is that it became something of, of a talking point when you beat Michael. And so any grade I got, oh, you're trying to outdo us, or I beat Michael. Like It, it doesn't matter what grade I get. It's a lose-lose situation. And so I went into this academic science fair, which was co competition by nature, and it's like I am being set up to be judged, critiqued next to my peers. And the goal was to win. And so as I got through the end of the process of trying to make something work, I realized I am a failure and I am going to lose. Now, it came to, head, to a head on a Sunday afternoon, I had been working on it all weekend, got home from church on Sunday morning and went to work at it again, and it was time to go up to church for some stuff. And so I'm sitting there in the middle of Sunday programming, Sunday afternoon, evening programming in kids' ministry, um, and I am just beside myself frustrated. And the, the teacher asks me, hey, what, Michael, what is, what is wrong? I'm a failure. Like, I mean, like, what, what is so wrong in your life? I'm, I'm, a, I'm a failure. And so this Teacher just keeps asking and saying, I mean, but how, how is it that bad? Like, it's not that bad. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. I'm like, no, I'm, I'm a failure. And I look back on that, and I piece some stuff together and went to the science fair, and of course I lost, uh, because by definition, if success was winning, I was a failure. I failed in that. Uh, and looking back, it's like, there's 
probably a less ambitious project that I should have taken on, or I should have solicited more funding up front uh, to make some of that a reality. Uh, I did not have the tools at my disposal uh, to put that kind of stuff on, on display uh, by any means. But failure is something that we, kinda, we get. Like it's a part of our life. We can think back at different moments of failure. And one of the ones that sticks out right now in recent history uh, happened at the end of last year. So we, we moved here. Uh, at the end of November, beginning of December 2018. And as we, as we got in place here, you know, you, you kind of established this new normal of what life is. And so what, what made it even uh, more challenging for us, uh, you know, of course we've got young kids and those types of things, but for whatever reason, and, and I do think it is the Lord at work in our lives, the Lord kind of led us to sell our house six months uh, before we moved, uh, we didn't know why. There was no interview process going on or anything like that. But I said, like, hey, I think, <laughs> God didn't say I think. We reflected what God was saying. We're like, I think it's time to sell our house. And so we took all six of us uh, in May of, of last year. My fourth, son, my fourth child was born on May 5th. Um, we took all of us and we moved out of our house at the end of May. Um, and we moved into a two-bedroom apartment right around 1,000 square feet. And we lived there indefinitely. We had no idea what we were going to do. And so it's like, well, we're going to do something, though. And so we had been living in this uh, two-bedroom apartment with six of us, which was just kind of a different feel for all of us. And um, it, it just it was different. And we moved down here, and we, we got situated in a place where we had more space than we knew what to do with. It was actually kind of fun at the beginning. So you have, like, this apartment life where there's three kids in one room, and then my wife and I and the newborn in the other room. Like, so we have, we have a house over in the village now, and um, our kids would not go to the second floor for the first two months here. Like, you, ha- you all have your own room. Go up there. Nope. All together on the floor in the living room. They just, they wanted to be together. Like, like <laughs> all that space was in vain. Uh, now they've adjusted, especially my daughter. She loves her alone time now. But, but we found ourselves, we're in this, like, different place, different world, different church, different situation, and things just did not feel normal, right? There's no routine. There's no flow. There's no direction of what's going on. And so I began here as the youth pastor on December 3rd, and my 10th anniversary was coming up on December 20th. And we got to December 20th, and I did nothing. Nothing. We're in the season of craziness and busyness, and I I realized uh, that I had done nothing. And my wife realized that I had done nothing for the 10th anniversary. And rather than having some objective evaluation about the craziness of life and the fact that we're living all these different schedules and we're trying to get adjust to this new normal, my wife felt what is natural and normal in that situation hurt because her husband did nothing for their 10th anniversary. And so my wife comes to me, as all wives do, in the most kind, gracious, loving way and expressed her feelings in a way that was um, palatable and understandable. And no, it, we, we dealt with, in that moment, what couples who deal with in those moments deal with. And I sat there in hindsight, and I said, I'm a failure. And this can't be fixed today. And this can't be fixed tomorrow. This is something that will take not, not days, not weeks, not months, but years to fix. Because now I've created a narrative that I have to compete with. And I knew. I knew that I was a failure. Failure is a part of our existence. 
And anytime there is failure at play, there's pain. Failure always leads to pain. And whether it's our failure causing pain for ourselves, like I did in the science fair, or our failure causing pain for others, there's, and, and there's other situations we go in, and it's like there's pain going on. And we're like, I, don't, I can't even identify who failed, but somebody had to have failed for me to feel this kind of pain. See, the, the reality that we, we live in is because of us, because of someone else, because of no reason at all, sometimes life goes wrong and we feel it. And so within our being, we ask this question, why? Why is it that this is the way it is? And so in Genesis 1, we see this kind of beautiful picture of what God, in his great design, intends creation to be all about. Genesis 1.31 says this, And God saw everything he had made, and behold, it was very good. This is at the end of the creation of man and woman. God looks at all of his creation and says, Oh, this is this is very, very good. And there's this internal aspect of our lives where that very goodness is something we long for. There's those moments and we get those. One of the joys of life is we get those different experiences where we sit down. We don't realize we're even entering into that phase of life or even that moment. And we sit down and we realize, oh, things are good. Like my family, work, whatever it is that we, we value, things are just good. We have that moment of peace. That moment of contentment. But we know that in this existence that those moments are fleeting. And those moments are fleeting for a reason. You see, in Genesis chapter 3, we get this picture of what happens, the natural consequences that occur when people fail. And so we have Adam and Eve who had eaten of the forbidden fruit. And God's response to them is this. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. The end result for the woman with her failure was pain. The end result for the man because of his failure was pain. We live in an existence where failure leads to pain. And so we just ask this question. In a world where we know we're going to experience failure, it's inevitable. Either we're going to fail, they're going to fail, or someone that we don't even know is going to fail. In a world where we know we will experience the pain of failure, how do we deal with it? Like, How do we look at a world that God created to be good and live in it, in the midst of pain. And one of the great things after this encounter between God and Adam and Eve is that he begins this dialogue, not just with Adam and Eve, but with all mankind, where he says over and over again, "Of things are wrong, but I will be working to restore it. Things are not okay, but have faith, trust me. I will begin working to restore all things back to the original very good. And so to the snake, the serpent that deceived Adam and Eve, he says, hey, there's going to be strife between you, the deceiver, the person who has brought on failure. There's going to be strife between God and the enemy forever until the very end when God eliminates that enemy for all time. And in fact, some of the language that we get is that there's going to be this snake crusher that is brought about ultimately to crush the head of the snake, to crush the head of the evil one, And in doing so, there's going to be some pain inflicted on him. 
In fact, it talks about how when he strikes the head of the snake, the snake will strike the heel of the snake crusher. And so we see this picture even in the book of Genesis of God forecasting out the way that ultimately he is going to bring peace to the earth. It's going to come at great personal cost to the person who brings that peace. And so when we look at it through the lens of what we know God has done over the past millennia, working throughout all time to bring back the restoration to the very goodness, we know very clearly from our vantage point that the snake crusher is in fact Jesus and that redemption actually is available. And so we fast forward. We're going to get into the first century what we're about to read is in the book of Colossians. And in, in the book of Colossians, we have the writer Paul who is addressing a group of people who had heard a variety of things. These people had heard about Jesus. In fact, a church had been established, but one of the things that had infiltrated the church is this idea that Jesus is not the only way. He's just a really good one to choose. Like We, we, we really want to make sure um, that you're doing good things. We want to make sure that you're worshiping those that have come from God. But Jesus is a spirit that has come from God. Jesus is a voice that has come from God. And so Paul, as he writes Colossians, is making this appeal saying, no, 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 listen. Jesus is not a way. Jesus is not a source of hope. Jesus is not a thing that you can turn to when times are bad. He's the singular. There's no other. And so he begins in Colossians 1.13 on making his point of saying, if you want to know why Jesus is our source for redemption, if you want to know why Jesus is our source for peace in the midst of turmoil, if you want to know why Jesus is the one we look to for redemption and salvation, this is why. Verse 13, it's because Jesus, he, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have the redemption God has and whom we have the redemption and forgiveness of sins. Let me take one step back. God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. And so the transfer uh, to the kingdom only comes through the son and it's in him, in Jesus, that we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. It goes on. He is the image, Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God. Meaning, if you want to know what God in flesh would look like, it's Jesus. But there's no other option out there that can make that claim and live up to it. It's Jesus. Not only is he the image of the invisible God, he's the firstborn of all creation, which means he has supremacy amongst all the created beings. And so there may be other men that come along. There may be other men that say, hey, follow this way, follow this way, this way. No other man has preeminence above all creation. No other man can make the claim that he is above all. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. And so if you want to know why, if you want to know why Jesus has that opportunity to say, I am the top of creation, like I, I have preeminence over, I have authority over, it's because he was there at creation. Like no other man can make the claim that he was present, actually working in the creation of all things. We go back to Genesis 1 at the very beginning, and God looked at all he created, and it was very good. Jesus' present in that moment, claiming the creation that he took part in, was very good. That's why he's above it. Whether thrones or dominions or authorities, all things were created through him, not just through him, 
but for him. And so everything in the created order has a purpose, and that purpose is designed by the creator, which means anybody who would come in claiming anything other than Jesus as supreme is not acknowledging the fact that, no, it's created for Jesus. Verse 17, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. And so there's nothing that happens in the life of the church. There's nothing that happens in the life of creation. There's nothing that happens in our existence that is removed from the supremacy of Christ. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, to reconcile himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross, which means when God looks at his creation in Genesis and says, begins this dialogue of, I will make things right. You will experience pain in this world, but I will work to make things right. What we have time and time again within scripture that's lived out in the life of Jesus, that's lived out in the lives of believers across all time, is the fact that Jesus is the one who makes things right. Jesus can redeem what's gone wrong. And so I look back at different moments in my life, and I I think through what it actually means for Jesus to redeem what's gone wrong. Now, when it comes to this science fair, um, this is an area where I'm like, well, I mean, like we would say, okay, if Jesus were to redeem what's gone wrong in that area, like some of us would say, well, well, yeah, I mean, he'd make you win. Like, if Jesus was really present, this is like some, some things that people think. Like, if Jesus actually cared about you, he would have made you win. I'm like, well, maybe. I mean, that's, that's a point of view. The point of view that I have worked through, and I'm serious when I say I've worked through, um, the point of view that I have worked through, that I know that it's only Christ working in my heart that has helped me work through these things, is not that Jesus would help me win. is that Jesus would help me know that I have value whether or not I win or lose. I don't walk into a classroom and only have value because I'm the best in the classroom. I walk into a classroom and I have value because Jesus created me in the image of the creator. Like I made it in Jesus' image. That's why I have value. And so even in moments like that, Jesus can redeem. When it comes to my marriage, (laughs) not just my whole marriage, I guess. When it comes to the anniversary that I missed, I'll say that because I can go story after story after story of how I messed up in other ways. But when it comes to redeeming the missed anniversary, there are some different things that Christ did in my heart to help me move past that. One of them is in the area of finances. Um, this is something I, like I, I want to be as transparent as possible when it comes to, to money because I think money does have spiritual implications. I, I, and you need to listen to Brett Levi talk about this. I am a cheapskate. Um, this is something that, that Brett... When I was here last time on staff, and now Brett makes fun of me for all the time. I do not like spending money at all. I am so averse to spending money. In fact, um, one of the guys uh, going on the, we have a San Juan uh, trip coming up. Uh, Guess who the guy was that checked every box on borrowing equipment for the fishing trip? This guy. 
this guy. I don't like spending money. And so, um, and so when, when I looked at that 10th anniversary, knowing that we'd probably incurred somewhere between eight to $10,000 of additional costs over that month that were unforeseen, just the cost of moving and getting things right and prepaying things that you didn't remember that you were actually going to have to prepay and those types of things. And I looked at the anniversary, I'm like that, that just feels like a lot to take on right now. And so, um, in, in, in praying through what I need to do, um, I, got, I got this refund check from uh, my escrow account um, from my last house that I had, I had completely forgotten about. And um, I said, okay, well, what do I do with this? I cashed it. And I went to an envelope, and it was the unlimited yes to a date fund. Like it, it's, it's one of those, I was like, it, 100% of it will be spent on dates. That was it. Um, I was like, that's, that's the way that we're going to redeem this moment. And I was like, ah, I have a lot of expenses right now in lots of different areas. Yep. I also have a wife who needs to be loved. And so as, as Christ calls me to love my wife, as Christ loved the church, as Christ shows me the way to sacrificially love the one that is entrusted to me, and the answer to the question, what do I do, was spend more money than you're comfortable with. Because that... <laughs> even now I'm telling you it's more money than I'm comfortable with just saying anytime you want to go anytime you want to do until this envelope runs out the answer is yes but I'm telling you even in that moment Christ used the inner workings of my heart the inner workings of my marriage to show me that he can redeem any situation that I find myself in and so here's what I want us to think through as Jesus redeems one thing that happens is that values change so values change. I'll go back to uh, the, the science fair aspect. The value changed over time for me. Christ worked through years to help me understand that my values of who I am and perceived values have to change. And one of the areas in life that you're, you may struggle with, and I know your team struggles with, is the fact of what actually defines real value. And so redemption through Christ brings about a change in values, and then strategies change. How am I going about fixing what is wrong. You see that the non-Jesus side, the old self, the part of me that wants to reject anything of God and how Christ loved the church would look at my wife at the end of our first discussion about our missed anniversary and say, listen, Shauna, we don't have the money right now. And let me use the strategy of convincing you that we don't have the money right now. And so it's not my fault that you missed out. Circumstances beyond my control. The fact that we moved, the fact, hey, you're the one who wanted this new house, by the way. You're, I, I, I would have been content. I would have been content with what you wanted it. You wanted the couch. You, you did. You remember, you remember when I pulled that old couch out of storage? You know, I loaded up the pod individually. I unloaded the pod. You remember those moments and you said that's not enough? That's why we didn't go to dinner tonight. That, that's a strategy. <clears throat> and it's, it's, we laugh about it, but it's completely divorced from humility. It's completely removed from the love of Christ. And so even in, even in moments like that, our strategies change. And I think if we would take some time, and, and maybe the number one discipline that we need to adopt when it comes to thinking through how to change our strategies to be more like what Christ would want, maybe the number one strategy is simply to slow down. 
I know some of the worst things I do from a strategic standpoint, the way I practically try to approach problems are hindered the most when I go too fast and I don't give time, uh, the Lord time to work in my heart. And so values change and strategy changes. And one final thing, in your own life and in the lives of your kids, I want to plea to you to allow failure to be a part of it. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, I think one of the things that if you look back on is that some of the greatest growth that you've, you've had in your Christian walk has been a result of failure and the fact that Christ is faithful to work in the midst of our failings. When it comes to youth ministry specifically, one of the things that is just burdensome on my heart is, is the fact that we have many students who, who leave high school without a resilient faith because they've never been allowed to fail. Like we, we want to put students in situations that they are not capable of being successful on their own in. We want that for them. We want them to feel the bite, the pain of not measuring up. Because when we feel the pain, the bite, the sting, the agony of not measuring up, we have a couple of different options. One, we could reject what we were trying to do in the first place. Okay. Two, we could actually turn to the source of ultimate strength. And what we want for our students is that they would develop a resilient faith because time after time after time in moments of failure, weakness, They've turned to Jesus. And so if we, if we remove the opportunity for failure from the lives of our students, what we remove is <clears throat> the opportunity to gain that discipline, that strength, that value and strategy-shifting heart change of turning to Jesus time and time again. And I'm telling you, that first option of rejecting what you were trying to do in the first place, that will come if a resilient faith does not. That's inevitable. The inevitable result of a student who grows into adulthood in this culture without a resilient faith is the rejection. It's the rejection of Christ. It's the rejection of church. It's the rejection of hard things that come to do, have to do with life as a Christ follower. We see it. We know the stories. We have peers. We have friends. We have family members. We even may have kids that we're worried about right now. So, so why not give the option now? And why not, why not give the option now when we have the proximity in the lives of our kids to look at them and say, hey, failure, failure hurts, doesn't it? Yeah, 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 failure hurts. But here's what I want you to know. You failed. That's okay. And it's not okay because next time you try, you're going to get it right. It's okay because, hey, failure happens. And maybe we can talk about some of the values that you're feeling right now. Like fourth grade Michael. Michael, I just want you to know that it is okay to fail in school because you, we don't view you. God doesn't view you as just a student. Like, you're not just a student. Your value is not contingent on whether it's a 97 or a 99. Your value is not contingent if it's fourth place or fourth. Like, your value is more than that. Michael, you, you love your wife. Like, you started dating her in high school. Like, you've known her more, for more than half your life now. Like, like, feel. Feel how bad it is to let her down, but don't stop there. Remember that I'm calling you back over and over again to love her like I loved you. Feel that. 
Be willing to feel that. Jesus can redeem everything. Let's pray.